Welcome to Geared for Growth. I'm your host, Mike Mortlock from MCG Quantity Surveyors. Today we're talking to the lovely Lisa and Brian Happ, who founded the buyer's agency business, Personalised Property Professionals. We speak to them about their multi-decade investment journey, starting with the first house that they purchased together, which they would consider a mistake, through to a unit and a dual income property, through to multiple tenancy properties, commercial and even development sites and joint venture opportunities. They share some great insights into finding a mentor, the importance of diversification and how to find these properties around the country. It's a really awesome interview with Lisa and Brian who are in rarefied air with the success that they've achieved in their portfolio and are really looking to give back with education, which we really appreciate here at Geared for Growth. Anyway, here's Lisa and Brian. Lisa and Brian Happ, thanks for joining me on Geared for Growth. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. In, uh, anyone that's watching on YouTube will see Lisa slightly disappear into a ghostly <laughs> background there. There you go. That's a little bit better. Uh, so I've been looking forward to having you guys on the show for, for quite a while. I, I suppose... When I first came across you guys, there's some interactions on uh, social media and those sorts of things. And you are one of those kind of uh, influencer couples in the property space. Now you've you've gone down that sort of traditional road of well, uh, that road of, you know, we were we were doing it for ourselves, and our friends were noticing the success, and they'll say, "I'll have what what you're having," and then you've started your buyer's agent's journey. But talk to us about what was happening in the beginning. Lisa, I know you were investing in uh, in property in your early 20s, so it's obviously always been a passion for you. Yeah, look, it, I think one of the main things was when I was growing up, um, we never had a home that we actually lived in constantly because my dad was a fisheries inspector. So we travelled around New South Wales with his work and he was given a house as part of that. So it was never, my parents never actually owned their own home. So with me growing up, it was like uh, that stability and that wanting to, you know, to, to own my own home and just appreciated property, I think, from that that growing up stage. Yep. And has it always been a feature of your life, Brian, or was it a later interest? No, I, I've had a couple of properties before, Lisa. So one is a, as a venture into investment at, at 7.5% interest rates. So uh <laughs> That didn't work out well, but it was um, didn't work out badly. So yeah, no, we both had independently had the bug before um, before we joined forces. So um, it was an easy sort of step when we did join forces. And when you did join forces, a typical date night for you guys would have been heading to a property seminar. Um, and you've got some cautionary tales about property seminars and, and probably your first investment together is one of those. What are you happy to share about that? Yeah. Basically, we went to a, a, a Spruker's uh, a seminar at a, at a, at a well-known hotel in the, in the fancy rooms and we were selected out of the crowd ram- randomly and all those sorts of um, tricks that they play. Uh, um and we sort of won a trip around around Melbourne to have a look at their house and land packages and those sorts of things. Um, and we decided not to go with them. We could do it better ourselves. So our, worst, our first joint venture was uh, we bought a uh, block of land, a few k's from where we live. So the block of land was in Torquay and 
we then slapped a metric on home on it and uh, called ourselves property investors. So just about everything wrong at the time, but um, you know that's one of the the, the mistakes that was uh, sort of quite a few years ago. Now that was back in two thousand and four five. So. Yep. Now, Torquay's a beautiful part of the world, so how much of a mistake could it be? I mean, Metricon's a reputable builder. You know, you buy a, par- a parcel of land. Surely there's money to be made on a deal like that. What actually went wrong? Oh, I think it was just mainly that there was, you know, so much other land around where we, we bought at that stage. So ours was like kind of the end of of that that package going on um but then yeah there's still a lot of building that could could happen and did happen after that so even though you know the rental return was okay etc um it sat there really not doing a lot for us for for quite a while in that sense while the the market kind of caught up and and the land got a bit more um value i suppose to it yeah we literally had potato farms over the back fence and um 10 years of non-existent capital growth. So, Ouch. And then you weigh up the opportunity cost of that as you're sitting there with that investment property and seeing the market all around you going up. That's a hard one to swallow. Yeah, well, look, it was, but it was also um, a learning, a lesson in learning and, and those sorts of things. And we had a young family at the time, prioritised things around that. But, yep. yeah, we thought we were property investors at that stage. <laughs> we know. <laughs> well, I, mean, I think the good thing about uh, podcasts with with people that have admittedly made mistakes is that there's there's plenty to learn from, and people I think identify with that. And you guys are always very open and honest with that. But um, that wasn't thankfully the end of your property investing journey. That the next one you purchased a, a unit. Now already that's people are going. Oh no, this is going to be off the plan. Two hundred units, you know, barely settles because the vowels don't stack up. But this was actually in a in more of a boutique development where you put a bit more thought and effort into it. Was this the first time that you felt you were investing as investors with more sophistication, or did you still think? At that, at the point you are now, you maybe wouldn't have bought that one. I think it's it was it's always been, um, yeah, probably yeah, like exactly like you said, like would you buy a unit now, or would we encourage people to buy one in that sense? And the answer is probably no, unless you know the reasons for going into it and what your stepping stones are moving forward. So, um, we did go in with knowing a bit more about what we were looking for and knowing that the, the, the spot that we were looking at, because it was close to Noosa, um, potentially people had to live somewhere. Like if they worked in Noosa, et cetera, like that, you couldn't live in Noosa. So we picked another spot that was quite close to there, thinking that the, for rental opportunities, we would always have it rented out because people had to li- to live somewhere if they were working around that area. So, you know, it has, has never been vacant. We've always had tenants in that that property. Um, so in that sense, it was it was quite good. Yeah, look, we bought that in 2015. So it's in Sunshine Beach. Happy to share that. And it's a block of, it's one of three. So very low body corporates. It's more than, significantly more than doubled in value. Um, and it's ROI now is around sort of that, 14% yield, 15% yield. With interest rates just having gone up, 14% still very good. 
Yeah, no, it is. It's a it's a good little package that's that's done some invest the capital growth, but is now isn't now real genuine cash flow sort of property. And we've you know leveraged off it a couple of times. So good to recognise that as well. It's done what we needed it to do. Has it always been cash flow, Brian? No, we started out at around five percent uh, yield, and at that stage, interest rates were up around the seven. So, yeah, it's over time. It's certainly sort of broken even, and and now going into the yield factor. The the reason why I ask is because the next property in the portfolio was a dual income property. So I was wondering. At that point, were you chasing a bit of cash flow to balance out some of those losses or was it more of a change in strategy? What was the, the justification for that one? Um, I think we just started looking at what else we could do with the property or what else did we want from, from our next property. So just trying again to not just do the normal things that we've been doing, going, okay, like we've always been a couple who like the diversity and looking at what else we can do with, with the property as well. So you know, um, Brian will talk very shortly about his his thinking <laughs> behind stuff. So, you know, people go, well, you end up going on holidays or something and then looking at property, which we always did do. Um, but this one, it was a positive income property. Um, we really looked at what we could do to it. So it was a corner block. Um, it, we saw straight away it had dual income potential so we were looking at what we could do with that. So we just did a, a bit of a renovation onto it, um, got the second second dwelling within the property up and running properly. And then, yeah, we were able to actually rent it out for dual income, as well as it being a corner block. And potentially we could develop that down the track and put another dwelling onto that property as well. So we're looking at all that add-on values that we could do with this property. Yeah. So you you had the immediate cash flow, but also upside potential based on the utility value of, of what you had there. Yeah. Plus it was in a, a coastal town, which we Brian can go. Do you want to tell him your longboard theory? Yeah, I can go on to my longboard. Yes, the longboard theory. This if, this is a good if one. Follow, if you follow the theme, it, it's there when we started investing and even when we were doing this, there was weren't podcasts like yours, Mike, that you know provide free education and I'm dyslexic. I don't um, read uh, textbooks and, and data. Well, data I read well, but, yeah, literature I don't read that well. Um, so if you follow our theme, it, we go from Torquay to Sunshine Beach, uh, and this one's in Crescent Head. And if I look at all the, the great longboards in Austra- uh, longboard waves in Australia, so surfing waves in Australia, the property price is just adjacent to those or in those areas you know, had gone through significant growth. This one in Crescent had hadn't yet, and it met all, it ticked all our boxes. And Crescent Head, if you know it, it's basically landlocked by national park or state parks and flood zones. Absolutely fantastic wave, and for the older people, um, or for all people, I suppose. And just sitting there, going to me, the capital growth was just primed to go, and subsequently, it certainly has. It shot up. Significantly. So we've done really well out of this little um, find undervalued pockets around where people, you know, as they mature, like to surf. And it's, it's you know, now we'd call it a lifestyle driver. Yeah. Um, but it was something that, you know, it was something that I'd worked out in my head going, yeah, if we follow this trend, we're, we're doing really well. 
and it's proven very successful. Well, the longboard is an interesting one, but I guess what's what's I'm, I'm, and admittedly I'm not a, a surfer, but what's characteristic about a longboard wave is that it's not you know huge, big, dumpy surf. It's it's places where families can go with their kids and that sort of thing. So. Uh, there's, I suppose there's, there's a greater thing to it than just the longboard, but that's a very interesting insight you've got there. But it's a lifestyle location, right? And I'm guessing that when COVID happened and people were able to exit the cities and go to these lifestyle locations, you've had a really good run. Is there anything about these lifestyle locations that are making you think, well, as people go back to the city, we're likely to to see it contract a little bit, or are you feeling like there's enough diversification, enough drivers that you're comfortable with them? I think there's a lot of drivers that, that you know, the city lifestyle, the drive to sort of regional and, and retirement locations, those sorts of things, it's a demographic change that started before COVID. Um, COVID probably just helped accelerate it, but it's going to continue. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I think a lot of people are being called back in to the uh, into the office, but we're still going to yearn for those those locations. I want to ask you about uh, a mentor that you you sort of got in touch with and a previous guest of our podcast here, Ian Ugarte, who's very famous for his dual occupancy or let's say multi-tenancy dwellings, you know, high yielding, you know, high utility value, um, which I think is something that we're likely to see more and more, that community housing style model uh, as housing becomes you know difficult, more affordable, older people uh, become more lonely in their isolated little, little pockets. Um, what was it about uh, Ian that sort of spoke to you and and his strategy and and his philosophy? Was it that that sort of dual income property that kind of got you thinking? And he's sort of like the king of that sort of stuff. Yeah, I think um, Brian had actually just heard it and said, "Oh, yeah, I'll go along and listen to one Ian speak and see what um, it was all about." But it did actually meet a lot of our own thinking with what we were seeing well, happening, et cetera, like that. Like the the housing shortage that's going on, people not being able to afford the rents for a whole property themselves and different things like that. It just made it more sense to what he was doing and what he was trying to achieve. So it really sat with us um, right, I suppose, for those two, two things, as well as, um, you know, potentially looking at the higher income um, or cash flow as well for where we were sitting at that stage. Yep. And when it comes to mentors in the property space, Brian, you mentioned before that, you know, when you were looking into it, there weren't podcasts and and those sorts of things. And there's no shortage of personalities as you will have seen. And I know you guys sort of participate in the in the social media of of property with different groups and those sorts of things. What advice would you have for finding a guru or a mentor? Because, you know, what people are saying is not necessarily uh, aligned with what individual investors are trying to achieve. Yeah, very much, Mike. I think the first thing you've got to do is make sure that they've done what you're wanting to do. Are they at where you want to be? Um, You know, have they got the runs on the board? It's as as simple as that. And I, I think one of the... The advantages now is, is with social media and, and 
good old Google and all those sorts of things, you can find out if that person or that sort of organisation is going to be a fit for you. Um, and make sure that they're also willing to be challenged um, and pushed and, and, you know, not sit there and go, this is my way or the highway. Um, you know, I think your mentors need to make you feel slightly uncomfortable yep. to get outside your comfort zone, but also be able to be pushed back and, and challenged. Um, as you learn more, um, be able to, to challenge what they're actually saying and, and make your own decisions, teach you, teach you to understand, not just give you a, a solution. Yeah, teach a man to fish, that cliche, right? And very appropriate for YouTube watchers who see your, uh, your <laughs> tuner on your on your screen. And, of course, Lisa, with your father being the, the fisheries inspector, I've tied that in like an absolute champion. Uh, <laughs> always good to give yourself uh, your own reviews. Um, the ne- getting back to your property journey, the next property was a full uh, rooming house or boarding house, H- how would you describe it and uh, and talk to us about the numbers and how that fit into the portfolio? Yeah, so the next one, um, we were students of Ian's and in his mastermind group as well. So this next one was a full rooming house. Um, it was during COVID and we'd been looking um, around for ourselves a bit to, to do it. Like it would have been nice for us to do it ourselves, but obviously being stuck in Victoria and not allowed out at all. Um, It was just, you know, working with Ian and that kind of thing, we were able to get a a property in Brisbane City Council, which different states and different councils have different rules, but that was one that you could do the micro apartments, which was five micro apartments is the maximum. Um, So we were able to do that and and that just allowed us to get that cash flow in um, and that property hasn't been um, vacant whatsoever since we first started with that one. Yep, so it's really a bit years down now. So, yeah, it was rent appraisal was about 500 and and after we did the conversion work with Ian, uh, I think it it came in at around 1,400 at the time and it's gone up since then. Wow. So what sort of yields typically could someone be looking at at a property like that? The Give for Growth Property Investing Podcast is presented by our business, MCG Quantity Surveyors. If you're an investor or a property professional looking to get the best tax depreciation deductions for yourself or your clients, please get in touch with us at mcgqs.com.au. It's our mission to help as many property investors as we can to maximise their claims and maximise their property education as well. Yeah, this is, um, if you're looking at pure uh, yield, it's sort of 8 to 12 to 14. Um, Looking at, I allow about a 25% cost for operating this as a rooming house. So you pay your the internet, the power, the water. Um, you pay generally a high management fee naturally. Um, it's a higher insurance cost. So all of those uh, I allow for about 25%. It's not it's doesn't often hit that high, but if you allow for it, that sort of uh, gives you the ballpark of where you end up net. And I'm always looking at a net return rather than a than a yield. You can have fantastic yields that when you actually dive down in it, it, it doesn't sort of add up to a, to a great result. Mm. I think you're absolutely right, and that's what uh, attracts a lot of people around commercial, right, because everyone talks 
net and when resi and commercial guys compare yield the commercial guys love to say you're talking gross aren't you <laughs> very much so. i'm a net guy myself um <laughs> And speaking of commercial, uh, you, you then went on to purchase a property which was kind of like your your foray into accidental commercial investing, but it actually turned out that uh, it still ticked all the boxes despite it, uh, it it not being a residential like you originally intended. Tell us about that one. Yeah, well, um, it was really funny. We are just looking at um, this property came up and I went, oh, that sounds pretty good, you know, so I started digging into it a bit more and they were actually advertised it as residential because it was a Queenslander house in Ipswich, so I'll <laughs> name the name again, um, and it had a potential for commercial property out the back. So that's kind of how they were advertising it. And it was like, oh, okay, this is something different. Let's learn a bit more about this, et cetera. Um, and then as we got partway through, we realised it actually wasn't resi at all. It was a definitely two commercial properties on the one property. So, again, we went, okay, let's just look at, into this a bit more again. And, um, you know, obviously there were some differences Um with our borrowing on how they looked at it, the valuations with how they value commercial differently to resi, you know, then we had to look at our actual legal leases and, you know, talking about outgoings and we have to audit the outgoings and, you know, all of this establishment fees, et cetera. So it did, um, we learnt pretty quickly as we were going through buying the property about commercial. Um, so, you know, straight away it was like finding Steve Polisi's book and, you know, reading up as much as we can and different things like that. But um, it, it was definitely interesting and it definitely got us uh, interested in, in moving towards that direction um, after it as well. Good, good to plug another guest of the show too with Steve Polisi. <laughs> He's got uh, Australian properties, probably best beard, and uh, I've never had much of one myself. But I'm, I've had a go at it, and I'm I'm confident to say it's the worst. <laughs> so, uh, in, in, outside of uh, that commercial, talk us through the other stuff that you've got involved in, because there's some commercial units, you've got some uh, some joint ventures, and a future development site. Where, let, this is where I sort of need to ask the question, all right, well, what is the end goal? Where were you at after purchasing that commercial? And and talk us through the transition to where you're at now and what the future holds for the portfolio. So I think one of the things in there, Mike, is to um, is to share our Torquay property story. Yep. So the Metricon we bought with, and we did all the nice things. We, we set it up beautifully the way that we wanted it. We paid extra for extra high ceilings and wide doors and those sorts of things. We also converted that to a rooming house. Right. And we took the rent from from that from 500 a week up to about 1900 a week. Um, it doesn't run quite as smoothly as the um as the Brisbane one. There's a you know, Torquay being a little bit regional and, and winter sort of summer modes. It, it it's not as full as, as Brisbane. Yep. But again it's turning that sort of lemon into into lemonade or lemon pie or whatever the, the saying is around that um we've also bought one in uh bundy that i like to call oh, yeah. lisa's play property um some people come home and and their wife goes oh i've bought a handbag i come home from work and lisa goes oh i've bought a property uh, <laughs> i'll let you talk about that one <laughs> yeah we did a um 
in between the COVID stages, we did a bit of a road trip with um, a few other of our property friends, one from Sydney and one from um, Queensland as well. And we did a Harvey Bay, or Gympie, Harvey Bay, Bundy kind of, Maryborough kind of look, just looking around that area. Um, And I just liked the feel of of Bundy. It just had a nice feel for it and, you know, that you could get some good blocks quite cheaply um, at that time. And, um, yeah, when we came home, we were looking at Harvey Bay. um, But, yeah, I ended up finding this little property in Bundaberg, which, you know, um, was advertised for 220, I think it was. Um, I love negotiating and trying to to beat down any prices as much as I can. Um, so yeah, so I ended up getting that for 175,000 um, and it's rented for 320 a week. So just a nice little turnaround. Um, it's out of the flood zone. It's um, we can put another property on it as well. So another potential dual um, income. So yeah, just a, a lot of little things that we can do. So Brian calls out my little play property that, you know, we'll just, we're get, heading up there next month again to have another look and do a little bit of a reno on it. Um, so we've just done that a couple of times and it's just a really good old Queenslander that's solid as that we just, yeah, yep. we we're expecting to knock it down. But it's just too good. We don't need to knock it down. We can actually work around it. There you go. I suppose the things like. Yes, yeah, so go, go, Brian. The things like the sitting there going, it, it it's almost ironic we sit there and go, no, our, our portfolio's done what we, we need it to do. We're in the sort of um, sort of coming towards the consolidation. Consolidation. Consolidation phase, that's it. Thanks, Mike. Um, and, you know, sitting there going, and I keep saying, no, we're not buying anymore. We've got another one we're in negotiation with at the moment. <laughs> um but yeah, opportunities come to you. So as you as you said, there's there's people out there that um, have heard us, and we've been very passionate about property and and uh, learning an awful lot as we go through. So yeah, we've got one in in New South Wales. I won't give you the location of this one that is um, you know a potential significant development site. That yep. um, you know, there's four of us in the in the partnership. Uh, it's not always smooth sailing and didn't expect it to be going in. But, um, yeah, look, the, the numbers look really good. Uh, and I suppose it's one of those things is when you stop looking for something, it comes and finds you. Mm. <laughs> as soon as you say we're not going to buy anymore, all these deals pop up and you go, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. just, just one more. Just one more. <laughs> yeah, Lisa's good at that. So, yeah, we we kept our, our sort of uh, – portfolio and said no that's it we're not buying anymore and then started learning more again and and yeah so we're now in the process of industrial on the sunshine coast in our smfs so i justify by it by saying we're not actually buying it it's the smfs that's buying it so that doesn't count that's a different get away with that right? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think you can. I think the tax office would certainly find a way to tie you together, uh, but uh, I'll allow it for now, uh, Brian. So the decision to sort of cap your investing, which let's call that a very unsuccessful decision so far, what made you um, What made you come to that? Was it a, a, a point at which you thought uh, once we look at this as a whole, the passive income is, is such that 
that's really all we need or that's all the the sort of debt that we want to take on? What was the decision-making process with that? Yeah, it's, it's, I suppose one of the things we did with Ian was actually really good processes around goal setting and sitting there going, how much is enough? And, and we've reached enough. We, we don't need to do anything more. We just need time to do a little bit of a, a its thing and then choose the timing right to do the exit strategies. And I suppose that's where we don't want to let go of what we're doing in property because we're enjoying it so much is, is um, and not too many other people talk about exit strategies and how the, what, what is it that you're going to do? Everyone says buy 10 properties in 10 years and you pay, you know, sell five and pay, live off the income of the other ones and all that, that waffle theory um, that doesn't necessarily fit in a, in a genuine strategy. So we're very much at the stage where, we can do a couple of things and that's it, float away and, and live very happily very uh, forever after. Um, but we're enjoying it. So. it. The problem you have is that you are still addicted to property. So the only way forward for you to indulge that passion is to help other people do it, which is which obviously makes perfect sense. You know, one of the criticisms of new entrants into the BA space is that they're learning their trade craft with other people's money. You're actually exercising your tradecraft with other people's money, and you're passionate about that, and and looking to to build a, a business that's that's a bit like your portfolio is going to be capped at a certain number of people, right? You're not interested in in growing the next sort of Fortune 500 buyers agent style. It's just finding a select few people to work with that you can you think you can add some some value. So tell tell us why you're so passionate about that, just outside of still getting to play in property. Yeah, it all came about where um, we saw the the buyer's agent kind of course being run and um, it just kind of, again, because we, we love education and we love like learning more or as much as we can and it it just made sense. So Brian said, no, you can do that if that's what you want to do. But, um, yeah, so I went and did that course and got my real estate licence um, and that's kind of how it just started off while I was still doing my full-time role. And then what happened was my full-time role, I ended up getting a redundancy as a TAFE teacher. And it just gave me the opportunity to actually be able to work in property full-time. Um, but what we're looking at with the business is really only, we only are wanting to work with, you know, the maximum of three to four people at any one time. You know, it's it's about getting the right property for them and to get to know them better to actually hopefully work with them long term to either build that property portfolio if that's what they're wanting um, or if they're into the stage of the consolidation and exit that needs to happen as well because we've obviously all going through that at that stage too. Um, but we've been planning for that for probably three years now. So, you know, it's, it's understanding what people can do with property, but helping them um, find out what their goal is and then finding the way through to meeting that goal for them. But really wanting to work with people, not just wanting, you know, any any property will do. It's actually really being able to, to work down and find the best property for them. So one of the things that we said is, would we buy this property ourselves? And if the answer is no, then we don't want to give that to a client just because we want them off the books. We actually want to make sure that we're giving them the, the highest asset we can find um, to suit their, their requirements that they need. Yeah, I think one of the things that we're really going to do is understand our clients, what their needs are, where their positions are. 
um, work with a with a strategic plan and go, what are we specifically looking for for whoever it is? If it's Mike Mortlock, what is it that is needed in his portfolio for the next step? But also map out the next few years after that, so that we've got an ongoing relationship. And then naturally, Mike will come back to us in a, in a couple of years or continue talking to us as we're going through. And yeah, it's time to pull the trigger on the next one. I like we, that. I was, I was talking to a buyer's agent this morning that said they purchase anywhere between 300K and 3 mil, but they wanted to make the point that those aren't the same clients, right? So for a <laughs> property that suits somebody at $3 million is very, very different. Uh, the client is very different to someone that's buying at that $300,000 mark, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think we're just so passionate about making sure it's right. We don't we certainly don't want to be the next Ray White of, uh, of of buyers agents. We want to be a boutique that really fits. And, yep. and if the clients aren't the right fit for us, we're not going to take them on. Um, if they put unrealistic expectations or uh, want to work in an area that that we don't work, we're not specialist in. Um, then we'll just well, we'll be able to yeah, we'll, we'll guide them on somewhere, guide somewhere them else, some, yeah. guide them onto somebody else if they're stuck on that or. Um, or guide them through to, a, to an area that we believe's got the the right balance for their requirements. Yeah, I think that's a great way to approach uh, the business, and and not not every client is going to be a perfect fit um, for every business. To finish us off, you guys have had so much diverse experience. I mean, you you talked, Lisa, about you know rapidly having to learn the way commercial worked. You know, you've gone from a house and land style property to to rooming houses, boarding houses, to the point where you're talking about development potential and JVs. If there's if there's one or two pieces of information that you think property investors really need to know to have some of the success that you guys have been fortunate enough to enjoy, what what do you think they would be? Yeah, look, I think one of the things is really diversity and understanding what that diversity is. It's it's not just diversity in location. It's it's diversity in strategy. It's in styles. It's it's knowing. Uh, what fits in your portfolio and how it's going to work. Um, you know, you never know what the government's going to come up with, with land taxes or new rules or this and that sort of things. So if you look at our portfolio, it's quite diverse, both geographically, but also in style. Um, you know, we've got some straight normal rentals, we've got some dual incomes, we've got some commercial, we've got some rooming. Um, and I think that's one of the keys to to understand you don't have all eggs in one basket. Yeah. The other thing um, that's really important, though, also is to have a good team around you. So, you know, like when you're building that portfolio, obviously other things happen, like you, you've you got to do a lot more administration stuff. You've got to make sure that you your accounts are correct and all that thing. So having a good an accountant, having a good mortgage broker who actually communicates and talks with you, um, and then obviously a buyer's agent too, if that's what you're needing. So it's getting that team around you um, that understands your situation and can work through with you as well. Beautiful. I think those are, those are awesome tips. And I wish everybody listening the success that you guys have had. And, and of course, you guys in your portfolio that you're trying desperately to stop growing um, and the business <laughs> as well. Thanks, uh, thanks, Brian, Lisa. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Cheers.